Okay, I want to share a little bit from Revelation 22 <clears throat> uh, in order to see who's there in, in, this new, in this city. Because we have put a lot of emphasis upon the consecration offering. I want to do these verses because I think this gives us the impact of the consecration offering. So I want to read a few verses here in Revelation 22. <clears throat> and I don't really believe there should be a chapter division there because he's still talking about the same thing. But I believe the chapter division is there because of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I think God wanted to bring it all to fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what I think. I think that it's there because God wanted it there. But you could read right straight through it. Without that chapter division, it would be all right. And he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Somebody asked Julieta, I think, the other day, why does the nation need healing? This is the eternal kingdom. Now, why does the nation need healing? And I said, well, the way I teach it is this. This tree bears 12 kinds of fruit. So you have to choose where you want to eat fruit or you want to eat leaves. <laughs> the leaves are for the nations. <clears throat> and there was no longer there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it in the New Jerusalem. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they, the bondservants, shall see his face. And his name shall be on their, the bondservants, forehead. And there shall no longer be any night. And they, the bondservants, shall not have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. Because the Lord God shall illumine them, the bondservants, and they, the bondservants, shall reign forever and ever. Now, the confusion over these things is because most Bibles say, and his servants shall serve him. And everybody assumes that everybody who's born again is a servant of God. But this word is not diconus. It's not servant. It's dolu, dolus, dolos. And it means a slave. But dolos is translated of a slave, a bond slave, or a bond servant. So this is not just a servant, like a hired man. These are bond servants. Now that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning unless you see the law of the bond servant. And in the law of the bond servant from the Old Testament, we see what a bond servant is. And that, that is the impact of the consecration offering. So let's turn back to Exodus 21. And we'll see a little bit about the bond servant. <clears throat> Now, these are the ordinances which God gave them in Mount Sinai. He said, now these are the ordinances which are set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. 
If he is the husband of wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently or forever. So the law of the bondservant was that if a man could not pay his debt, he had to be sold into servitude or into slavery. They bought him off an auction block. And he had to serve the master for six years. And as we read it in Deuteronomy 15, we'll see that he had to give twice the service of a hired man. At the end of his six years, he was free to go. But if he didn't want to leave, he said, I love the master, and I love my master's family, and I will not take my freedom. Then the master took him to a doorpost and pushed him all through his ear, and he became a bondservant forever. Now, as we read it in Deuteronomy 15, he adds some things to it. Deuteronomy 15. Verse 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year you shall set him free. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from the threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this t today. It shall come about if he said to you, I will not go out from you. Because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. It shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man. So the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. So the picture is that we were all sold into slavery. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We all paid a, owed a debt we couldn't pay. And Jesus came and purchased us with his own blood. We weren't purchased with, silver, with uh, carnal things like silver and gold. But we were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says, we have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. He says, if we live, then we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord. For to this reason, Christ died and rose again, that he might be Lord, both the living and the dead. So we paid a debt we couldn't, we couldn't owe. And he came and purchased us off the auction block. So we were his servants. Now we have to serve him six years with twice the service of a hired man. See, it'd be nice if you could just get the people in the church just to serve him like a hired man. 
وانا But this requires they 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 serve with twice the service of a hired man. And then at the end of six years, if you want to take your freedom and go, there's no problem. He will give you liberally from the flock and from the herd. He will give you liberally from the wine vat. He will fill your hands when you go and he won't feel bad about it, he says. But if you say, I will not go free, because I love the master. And because I love his master's family, I will not go free. Then the master will take you to the door, a doorpost, pierce your ear, and you become a bondservant forever. In Psalm 40, where he speaks about uh, Jesus. Let's, let's read that verse. <clears throat> Psalm 40. <clears throat> Verse 6. <clears throat> this is the scripture we read when we did the bondservant from Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. My ears thou hast opened. Do you see it? Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. My ears thou hast opened. Burnt offering, sin offering, thou hast not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written to me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. So in the consecration offering, he opens the ear, or he pierces the ear, or the Hebrew seems to say, he dug it out. He dug out the ear, like that. So it's in the consecration offering that we give ourselves wholly to God as a bondservant. Then he opens our ear. Other place he says, he opens my ear morning by morning. <laughs> so we wonder why it is that we don't hear his voice. We wonder why it is that God seemed to be so far away. But in these bondservants, in Revelation 22, <clears throat> now that we understand what a bondservant is, let's read it again. And then it'll begin to make sense. <clears throat> he says in verse 3, there shall, no be, there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. That's the New Jerusalem. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they, the bondservants, shall see his face. And his name shall be on the bondservant's forehead. And there shall no longer be any night. And they, the bondservants, shall not have need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God shall illumine them, the bondservants. And they, the bondservants, shall reign forever and ever. So God has a place for those who are wholly his, doesn't he? And those who are wholly given to him are called the bride. Another place, they're called the overcomers. Another place, we see it as the kingdom. But God has many, many metaphors to speak about the work that he's accomplishing. For example, 
in the, in the scriptures that you read through them, you see that God is making a building. He's building a building. He's building a house. He's gathering together a body. Or Jesus said, I will build my church. He's building a temple, it says. He's building a tabernacle. He's, he's preparing a field. He's building a tower. He's building a city. He's making an army. He's building a kingdom. He's gathering together a family. He's preparing a bride. And he is creating a whole new race of people. So all these different metaphors in the Bible speak about some aspect of what God is doing to complete his eternal purpose. When, when they plow a field and plant, it's, the reason is they expect a harvest, don't they? They want to reap a harvest. You have to have a harvest before you have people that can fulfill the purpose of God, don't you? So we have a lot of parables that deal with this harvest. A sower went forth to sow and, and all that. Some brought forth a hundredfold, some sixty. So, the harvest is bringing people in. God is preparing a field here for harvest. But out of some of these people, he's getting priests and Levites. <laughs> and out of this, he's getting bondservants. Or he's getting a bride. Or he's putting together a kingdom. Which is suitable to the fullness of times. See? When you read it in Daniel 7... It's incredible. It's really incredible. But let's, learn, let's read that in Daniel 7. I believe that Daniel 7 speaks about what we're speaking about. Daniel 7. It's on page 1248 in my Bible. I don't think that'll help you. <laughs> it's right uh, after Ezekiel. Daniel 7, verse 13. <clears throat> I kept looking in night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ having been given dominion, sovereignty, and a kingdom. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, never pass away or be destroyed. But look in verse 27. This is incredible. In verse 27 he said, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. <laughs> His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey Him. <laughs> so, he said that Jesus' kingdom was going to be an everlasting kingdom, all the dominions, all the sovereignty, Everything is going to be given to Jesus. But all the dominions and all the sovereignty and all the 
greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the saints of the highest one. <laughs> so we see that Jesus is going to sit on the throne of heaven. But there are going to be those who rule over all the works of God's hands. Just like he said in, in Psalm 8, just like he said in Hebrews 2. He's going to have a people who rule over all the works of his hands. But he's going to, they're going to rule in the same character as Jesus. With the same attitudes and same disposition. With the same truthfulness. The same integrity. The same righteousness of Jesus himself. They're going to be like him. And because they're like him, they can be joined to him. And because they're joined to him, they will sit with him on his throne. See, when you go through the book of Revelation, you can't find the bride. You see her in Revelation 21, but you can't see her sitting on the throne. We find, all, we find many thrones in heaven. And we, and we know who some of those people are sitting on those thrones. But you don't say, it doesn't say, and there sat uh, the lamb on his throne, and over here sat the, the bride on her throne. Don't say that. So if she's going to sit on the throne, why don't we see her? We do. The two have become one. She has become bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She looks like him. He is the head, she is the body. And we see the lamb sitting on his throne. So God has this tremendous plan that he's unfolding for us. But the problem is the big majority of the church doesn't see anything beyond meeting my need, what I want, what's my right, etc., etc. And whenever man's need is complete and he's been redeemed, he's no longer going to go to hell, then he wants to go and do his own thing. He says, thank God, my sins are forgiven, now let me go live my life. And I think there's multitudes in the church who will respond if they see the reason for it. If they see that this is God's heart, and this is, what, this is what God purposed before the foundation of the world. If they see that God has a plan for his son, and that he's not going to accept just any old bride. <laughs> She's going to be a perfect bride. And it's going to be a wedding to end all weddings. <laughs> And there's going to be multitudes and multitudes and multitudes and multitudes there. But there's only going to be one bride. Only one. I know this offends a lot of people. To, to say there's going to be a bride and a lot of invited guests. But that's what the Bible says. And in Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 6, right after Psalms, <clears throat> And Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, 6, <clears throat> verse 8. <clears throat> he says, there are 60 queens, there are 80 concubines, there are virgins without number, but my dove 
My perfect one is one or is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The virgins saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, they praised her saying, Who is this that grows like the dawn? As beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. So, there's, there's going to be multitudes of people. They're going to be those with authority. They're going to be like queens with crowns. They're going to have authority and exercise authority. But they didn't come to that perfection. There's going to be concubines. Those who have come into intimacy with Jesus, but then was never called on again. Then there's going to be virgins. So many you can't count them. Virgins without number. But his dove, his bride, is just one. She is, she is incredible. It says she grows like the dawn. <laughs> you know, the sun comes up a little bit and it starts getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until the full sun. It says she grows like the dawn. As beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. So this bride of Christ is unique out of all the people of God. She's unique. And it's just not a matter of saying, well, you have authority and you exercise authority well and all that. It's not that. I mean, thank God for, for authority. But it's the perfection. It's those who are given wholly to him, to love him only, that he's calling to himself. Throughout the scripture, you find so many scriptures speaking about so that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to go from glory unto glory. I printed out all the scriptures on glory, and it was incredible. Everything that the Bible speaks about the glory of God. You know, Moses told God, he said, just let me see your glory. I want to see your glory. And God said, no man can see my face and live. You know, you'd think Moses said, I didn't want to see your face. I want to see your glory. <laughs> right? <laughs> but when, when Moses asked him, I want to see your glory, he said, no man can see my face and live. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by and then you'll see my glory. So, to see his glory is to see his face. But he said, no man can see my face and live. So we see that natural man can never dwell in the presence of God. He'd be consumed in the everlasting burnings. See, the Bible says, who can dwell in the everlasting burnings? Who can dwell in that furnace of fire, which is God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not left up his voice to vanity or sworn deceitfully, he receives the blessing of the Lord. Hebrews 12, it says, our God is a consuming fire. So this glory, which is God, is like a fire. It's like the fire that came down on Mount Sinai. That fire to some is his love 
To others, it's hell. Isn't it? Yeah. To others, it looks like the sun. To others, maybe the moon. But to those who are there, it's his love. It's the fire of his love. So we asked, who can dwell in the everlasting burnings? Who can dwell on his holy mountain? And our answer is, he was already burned up. Who can dwell in the unapproachable light which no man has seen or can see? He said in 1 Timothy. Who can dwell there? In that light that's so brilliant that no man can see it or has seen or can see it. Who can dwell there? Those who are transparent. The light of God just shines right through them. But in the opaqueness, if there's opaqueness there, it's going to be consumed by that fire. So we see the perfection that God demands of those who live there. Not because he's putting unreasonable demands, but because they are the only ones who can survive there in that glory. They have to be transformed from glory unto glory to live in the glory. <clears throat> now, 1 Peter says that we are like living stones. And when they built Solomon's temple, they went to the quarry and they, they blasted out or dug out or somehow they got some big rocks. And then they, they worked on those rocks. They cut and chipped and fit and, and cut and chipped and fit and fit and fit. Until every stone was prepared in the quarry. It said that when they went to assemble Solomon's temple... There wasn't heard a hammer or a chisel. All the stones were pre-cut and pre-fit before they took them to the temple site. In that same way, God has to cut us here. He has to shape us, chip away at us. He has to make us fit while we're here in the quarry. Because when we get there, we have to fit. He's not going to do the finished work up there. The finished work has to be done here. See? So he chips away at these stones. Now the work of the evangelist is to come up to the hill, put in a charge, and blow out a bunch of stones. And he blows out a bunch of stones, he gets a pile, and he says, oh, thank God, look at those souls. And he leaves. And goes and puts another charge in and blows out another bunch. Then the other ministries have to come. And they have to start chipping and fitting and all the other ministries are necessary. Because somebody has to say, to fit in that place, we need this size. And it has to be a certain way. And if it's going to fit in the wall, it has to be transparent jasper. If it's going to be in the foundation, it can be, it can be some of these other stones, chalcedony or whatever. <clears throat> But if it's going to be in that place, it has to be crystal clear jasper. So the ministries have to, have to come and say, this is what we need. Another ministry comes and say, okay, I can do it. See, and they have to have uh, skill. They have to have the wisdom like Bezalel when he built the tabernacle. 
God gave him special skills to do the craftsmanship and everything that was necessary. And in Solomon's temple, it's like that. There has to be special skill to prepare these things before they have to be fit in there. Now, I don't think any man has any idea how to build that temple up there. Jesus said, I will build my church. And I think the reason he said that is because nobody else can do it. I think he's the only one that understands how to get it done. So he said, I will build a church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, God, I believe, has sent the Holy Spirit to do this cutting and chipping. So when the Holy Spirit finds a chunk on you that's not square, it's not, it doesn't, it's not right, and he wants to knock that off, the best thing you can do is say, knock it off, isn't it? There's no use trying to save these irregular shapes because they're not going to fit in the eternal places, in the eternal kingdom of God, see? So in the gospel of the kingdom, we see all these impossible things that only God can do. And all we have to do is surrender and surrender and keep surrendering to everything that the Holy Spirit puts his finger on, we have to yield that thing and let him cut it and shape it and fit it if we're going to fit into the eternal city. So, Peter says that we're like these living stones that are being built into the temple of God. Now, if we fail to yield to the stone cutter, how are we going to be prepared for that? Many people are waiting for the rapture, are waiting for the, revel- for the resurrection, because they got some kind of an idea that no matter how irregular they are, in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, they're going to be transformed. See? And they're going to be perfected in a minute, like that. But that's not how God perfects it. He puts us in a quarry with a bunch of other people who reveal our irregularities. Those, all those are re- things are revealed in the church. When you, start, when you start fellowshipping with people, you soon find irregularities. Is that right? I mean bad ones. <laughs> they stick out. And you just wish God would come along and knock that off. And God will. If we just yield to him and let him do his eternal work. <clears throat> now the eternal purpose of God is seen in the creation. But in creation we see design. We see his purpose to have a, a man to rule over the earth for him. We see God's desire. We see it's something of his heart. But we see his goal. Even in Genesis 1 and 2, we see something of the goal. We see something of his plan. And we see something of his determination. Because God was determined to, that man would rule over the earth. We see something of origination. Because it was absolutely original what God wanted to do. You know, it seems like Satan at one time had authority on the earth. God threw him out of heaven. 
But evidently, one of the realms of his authority was the earth. And God removed him from authority. But he was like a king who has been dethroned, but still went around giving orders, telling people this and that, and he refused to settle under the authority that removed him from the throne, and so he's still going around acting like a king, which he's not one. So God now sends man, or he creates man on the earth to rule over the earth, to cause God's enemy, enemies and his adversaries to cease, it says in Psalm 8. And look what God did. He comes to earth, and here Satan is running all around on the earth. And God makes a man out of dust to guard the garden of God and subdue his enemies. Told him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. See, if I were doing it, I'd want something more than a pile of dust to give dominion like that, right? But look at God's confidence. He said, I can make a man out of dust and give him the authority on this earth. And he's no match for Satan. I mean, God knew that. He's no match for Satan. Satan has been around for a long time and he's full of wisdom and bells and horns and all, every kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but God said, if you just eat from the tree of life, you can rule. But eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you can't rule. Not that, you can't live. So man can take, God can take a man made of dust, let him eat from the tree of life, and he can rule. Not because of the dust, but because of the tree of life. And he can put him over all the works of his hands. And God can perfect that dust till he fits into that city as a precious jewel. Transparent. <laughs> so the light of God shines right through that new Jerusalem to illuminate the nations of the new earth. Now in 2 Peter, <clears throat> there's some scriptures that are essential for the church in order to participate in the fulfillment of, of what we were just talking about here. I'd like to read the first 11 verses. I know we're about out of time, but I want to read these things and put these things into perspective. I'll just start in verse 2. Grace, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge, the epinosis, of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these... 
He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, gnosis, general knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control or personal discipline. And in your self-control, perseverance, oppressing against. And in your perseverance, godliness, godlikeness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge, the epinosis, the exact precise knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So we see the building and the building and the building and the building from one experience to the next experience to the next experience to the next experience to the next experience. God is building in us character. He's building in us perseverance. He's building in us faith. He's building us into us all the attributes that he himself is. And he says, if all these characteristics, these, these attributes are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the epinosis, in the exact precise knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And an abundant entrance will be made for you into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 